that he was there to bear witness to the truth. He says, what is truth? Well, we live in a time where the concept of any absolute truth is essentially abandoned. And even where it's not entirely jettisoned, at least not consciously, the subjectivism of our age has had a significant and damaging impact on our world. The steady drip, drip that says there is no such thing as objectivity or objective truth or objective facts. Uh, the constant preaching to us that one's perception of reality is reality, it is truth. It's just up to you to determine it. These things that are constant, unending, they slowly erode confidence, any confidence, that truth on any level actually exists. Uh, Post-modernity has recognized that reason cannot provide all of the answers and has determined that ultimately then there are no answers. And so as Christians, we certainly would agree that uh, reason alone cannot guide us to the absolute truth. Uh, we believe that absolute truth must be revealed to us by God, by the Creator. And so we cannot get there by way of just reasoning. And that's why nobody does get to that truth uh, just by thinking about it. God must instead make himself known to us, and he has indeed done that through his word, through the Bible, the scriptures. And so as Christians, we are to be people who are of the truth. And so certainly, uh, we ought to value truth in society as it pertains to issues, say, in the news. So for example, if someone is accused of a crime, uh, we should desire the truth to come out so that justice may be done. If that person is guilty, we should desire that to come out and that justice may be served. If that person is innocent, we ought to desire that that truth come out. And we should desire that regardless of how it may or may not fit uh, our narrative. So truth is important for Christians. More significantly, though, than even issues in the news, though they're important, is that we are to be people who are careful about guarding the truth that is found in God's revelation in the Scriptures, His Word. The truth is something that's precious, precious, and we're not to take it lightly. We're to receive it, uh, but we're also to guard it and protect it. And as we come to 1 Thessalonians 5, 19-22, you can turn there now, uh, we are at the end of a section of commands that Paul gives to the Thessalonians, which began back in verse 12. So he gives commands to the church about how they ought to relate to their leaders, how they ought to relate to one another, how they ought to relate to those uh, then outside the church, not repaying evil for evil. And then he talks about how, we, how believers ought to relate to God himself, starting in verse 16, giving... Uh, rejoicing always, praying without ceasing, giving thanks. This is how we relate rightly to God. And then as we come to verse 19 then, he's still talking about how it is we relate to God, how we should appropriately uh, relate to him. And Paul's desire for them in these verses, and desire for us then, is that we would walk carefully before the Lord in truth. So as, as we will see, as Paul's writing to them, he tells them they are not to silence uh, or quench the spirit. They're not to silence the word or despise it. Um, but likewise, also, they're not simply supposed to believe everything they hear. Uh, they're to test it. And so there's, we're to be careful. Don't just despise it or dismiss it, but don't just believe everything. To be careful uh, with the truth. He wants care to be taken in this, discernment to be exercised. So let's read these verses just a a few short verses, starting in, in verse 19, chapter 5, verse 19. Paul writes, Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Uh, let's just pray. Father, we, we come to you again and, and thank you for your word. 
and we just pray now that you would uh, help me to make sense of this. I pray that you would help us even now to be testing uh, what I say, and I pray that you would be leading us to the truth and that you would make us people who, uh, who walk carefully in the truth and who care deeply about the truth and desire to know it and receive it and believe it and guard it. We pray you do this uh, in Christ's name. Amen. So here's where we're, we're going today. Here's the outline of, of what we're going to be looking at. Uh, as, as we've been, uh, as you know, we've been going through this series in First Thessalonians about a faithful church. And as uh, Harley mentioned, as we sang that song just now, uh, the church is often is depicted in Scripture as uh, going to war. And uh, that we are to have really the same set of commands, just as any good army follows the same orders um, to achieve their outcome. We're looking at some of our marching orders as we go through First Thessalonians, and we're looking at what makes a faithful church. And so as we come to this text, we're looking at a faithful church exercises care with the truth by, and then three things we're going to look at, not quenching the spirit, not despising the word, and by practicing discernment in all things. I think that's pretty straightforward. As you, That's almost word for word what the text is. So... Uh, that should be pretty simple for us. So a faithful church exercises care with the truth by first seeking to not quench the Spirit. Not quench the Spirit. So that's verse 19. Do not quench the Spirit. That's what Paul, Paul says. So that's pretty clear. Uh, pretty clear what he's saying. Um, but what does he mean? What does this mean? What does quench, quenching the Spirit, spirit mean? Well, the word quench has the picture of pouring, it's like pouring water on fire. That's the idea. Uh, snuffing something out, uh, or trying to snuff out a flame. So Hebrews 11.34 uh, uses it in that sense. Mark 9.48 talks about the fire of hell is not quenched. Um, Ephesians 6.16 uh, talks about a shield of faith to extinguish the fiery arrows of the enemy. So it's putting out fire is the idea of the word quench. And so the Spirit is often in the Scriptures depicted as, uh, as a fire uh, in a few places. So you can think of Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit arrives at Pentecost and you have uh, these men are speaking and tongues of fire appear on them, uh, which is the, the Spirit uh, descending upon them. And so, uh, so, the, so the Spirit is often depicted as fire, and here we're told not to then quench that Spirit, not to try to put that out. And so the command here is not, essentially not to stifle or suppress the Spirit of God. So that's, that's not hard to see, but what does that mean? You know, how would one possibly do this? Or perhaps more important, how do we not do this? How do we make sure we are obeying this, uh, this command from Paul? So many will, will say that uh, as they look at these verses that quenching the Spirit uh, is explained by verse 20. So the very next uh, command is do not despise prophecies. So some would argue that uh, that's what he means when he says uh, do not quench the spirit. Um, but I, I certainly think that's one way that the spirit could be quenched, and, and we'll, we'll come to that in a moment. Um, but the fact is they are, uh, they are listed as separate things. They're listed as separate commands for us. Uh, they're not linked grammatically uh, necessarily. Just like all these other ones, you have separate commands. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing. They're just listed side by side. So I think there, there is uh, a separation between these two. They're, they're different things, although, of course, certainly related. So I would argue that this command to not quench the Spirit is, is more general than simply not despising prophecies. Rather, here's what I would say it means. It means to resist or stifle the Spirit's sanctifying work within you. Resisting the Spirit's sanctifying work within you. So the Bible teaches that the Spirit of God resides in believers and is at work sanctifying Christians. And when we give in to sin and we resist God's Word, we are pouring water on the Spirit. We are quenching His work. And so I would say this is essentially then a call to not stubbornly press on in sin, but rather to pursue holiness, which is what the Spirit is at work in you to bring about. And so why exactly do I see it this way? Well, 
Uh, in Ephesians 4.30, Paul tells us there to not grieve the Spirit. Do not grieve the Spirit. And so I think that uh, what this means, um, John MacArthur, I think, helpfully uh, says this. I think it's good. It's helpful and right. That uh, grieving and quenching are essentially two sides to the same coin. That uh, what we do, we are the ones who would quench the Spirit through our disobedience. And then on the other side of that, the Spirit's response to that then is described as grief. So that's what grieving the Spirit would be. So I, I see these, these two things, do not grieve the Spirit, do not quench the Spirit, as essentially being and describing the, the same thing. So we are the ones who do the quenching and the Spirit, it says, is, is grieved. And so the, the context of Ephesians chapter 4 then is, is the context of walking, a call to walk in newness of life, to, to walk as believers, to put on uh, godly virtues, to put off uh, that which is sinful and of the flesh. That's the context in which we are told to not grieve the Spirit. So he's, he's saying, you know, to, to essentially uh, calling us to uh, put on Christ-likeness, and if we are not to do that, then we would be grieving the Spirit. And similar, it's a similar context to what we find here in chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, where we find this verse in the midst of a call to walk in newness of life, in an um, almost shotgun of imperatives for what the Christian ought to be doing, uh, from verses 12 on to 22. So, uh, again, it's all, all these things of what the Christian life should look like, what we ought to be doing, how to relate to one another and to the Lord. And so I think that Quenching and grieving the Spirit is what happens when we disobey these commands, when we don't obey these things, when we aren't living in this way. So really, I would argue it's just another way of saying, um, of, of calling us to obey, to obey the Lord. Uh, and to do that, he's saying, don't work against the Spirit by walking in disobedience. So uh, Philippians 2:12 and 13 says this, uh, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So that salvation that's in you, work it outward in your actions in fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work within you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So there he's telling us to uh, pursue Christ's likeness, to obey, he says, flat out in, in, in Philippians, and he says uh, we do that because God is the one who's at work within us uh, to will and to work for his good pleasure. So he's working at in us even as we are striving for godliness ourselves. So I think it's really the same idea being expressed here in 1 Thessalonians 5 that uh, it's just expressed a different way. It's expressed negatively. Uh, do not quench the Spirit. So in Philippians... Work out your salvation, uh, pursue godliness, because God's at work within you. Uh, and the opposite of that would be to say, uh, do not quench the work of God that is in you through the Spirit by disobeying. So that's, that's how I would understand, uh, do not quench the Spirit. So this is a call for us then to, to soft hearts. Uh, if you have been born again, that is, if you've heard the message of the gospel, you've understood that you are woefully sinful, you have committed sin upon sin, moreover, you, you are aware that you are a sinner. Uh, you, you've been this way from the very beginning. You've committed uh, innumerable sins against the Lord in your lying, your cheating, your coveting, idolatry, loving things. Uh, instead of the Lord, there's our, our greed, lusts of the flesh, all kinds of ways. If you have understood that is wrong and sinful and have cried out to the Lord for forgiveness, you've repented of that sin and you've received a new heart where you've actually received new desires that desire uh, obedience to the Lord, that is what being born again means. That your old ways of enjoying your sin and living for self, uh, you've, you've put those off, you've despised those, and you now long to live for the Lord and have new desires. That's what being born again is. And the Bible says that for all who've been saved, been born again, uh, we receive the Spirit of God within us. 
And he's the one who gives us those new desires and works uh, sanctification in us, making us more like God. The Spirit is moving us toward holiness. Moreover, the Spirit has inspired the Word of God. Uh, The words that we have that we can read and understand, we can know what are the things that please the Lord. The Spirit has inspired those things uh, to help us in our sanctification, to be a means by which we grow in godliness. And so we are told then to not fight against this, to not resist this. Now certainly, as we'll even see next week as we get into the verses uh, 23 and 24, uh, the Lord is sovereign in this process of sanctification. He's going to see His people through. And yet, and yet, we are still called as Christians to not pour water on this effort, to not work against this, to not quench the Spirit in this way. Yes, He's at work within us, and yet we are called to still pursue godliness. And so I would suggest that if you have been born again and the Spirit of God resides within you, the mere thought of quenching Him, the mere thought of grieving Him, would probably upset you. That would be a cause for sadness on your part, that the thought that you might quench the Spirit of God. And it ought to cause us sadness. And so if that's you and you maybe can identify certain areas where you are resisting, where you know the truth and yet you're, you're struggling with it or you uh, perhaps don't want to obey in a certain area uh, or maybe you're just simply struggling to obey in a certain area, though you, you know it's right and, and there's this part of you that really wants to, uh, then, then do what, what we always do when we discover that we have sinned, when we are confronted with our sinfulness, and confess that to God. Confess your resistance to His Word. Confess your resistance to His work of sanctification in you. Confess your hardness of heart. Confess the times that you have quenched the Spirit of God. Acknowledge that. Repent of that to the Lord. And then set about again walking carefully, uh, seeking to do what is godly, to be godly, presenting yourself as best you can as instruments for righteousness to the Lord. So faithful church is, is made up of those who are careful with the truth by seeking to not quench the Spirit. Second, a faithful church exercises care with the truth by not despising the Word. Not despising the Word. So let's read 20 to 22. Paul says, Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. The major challenge with this, these verses, the major interpretive challenge with this section is really, I think, simply understanding what is meant by prophecies. What does he mean by prophecies? What is he talking about there? Uh, if, we, if we know what that is, it's, it's not a difficult you know, concept to grasp, that, to not uh, despise that, uh, but to test it. So it says uh, in verse 21 and 22, uh, you know, so, so he, the, uh, he tells them first to not despise prophecies, but he tells them, he goes on to say, but to test everything and abstain from every kind of evil. Now that, to test everything, to abstain from every form, every kind, every type of evil, that broadens the application out. We're not just to test prophecy, but to test everything. Uh, and we will uh, we'll come to that in a moment. Uh, but first, let's, let's notice that they are to test prophecies. Do not test, do not despise them, but test them, test everything. So what then is prophecy? What is he talking about? What is prophecy? Prophecy is direct and authoritative revelation from God that comes through a person. So the prophet hears directly from God. In the Bible, we see it come in the form of, uh, it could be vision, dreams, uh, or just directly and audibly. Uh, So a prophet will hear uh, directly from God and then pass this message along to others. 
So this is often seen um, in the Old Testament uh, when you read the phrase, thus says the Lord. And then you often see quotation marks in your English translation. God is now speaking through the prophet. The prophet has heard from the Lord and now he's passing along directly what it is that the Lord revealed to him. The prophet is the medium that God uses to communicate uh, truth, communicate his message. These messages, these prophecies, they are authoritative because they are God's words. So, so God does not speak in non-authoritative ways. When he talks, we need to listen up. Uh, when he spoke in the Old Testament, uh, the people were to listen. Uh, this is God's word. This is, this is him speaking through somebody. It's the same in the New Testament. When God speaks, it's authoritative. Now, you will maybe have heard of two types of prophecy or maybe two elements of prophecy, depending on how you've maybe heard it explained. Um, but the two, the two types being uh, foretelling and forthtelling. Uh, so the first one, uh, foretelling, this would be where a prophet tells something that is going to happen in the future. And uh, so it's predictive prophecy. So an example of that, in Acts chapter 11, there's a prophet named Agabus who prophesies that there's a coming famine. And sure enough, there is a coming famine. The famine arrives, and, uh, and, and that's why we see Paul, uh, sometimes in his letters, he's, he, he talks about this collection for the saints in Jerusalem because they're under famine, and he's collecting uh, money to help uh, relieve their suffering. So there's predictive prophecy. You think of uh, in the book of Isaiah, there's a prophecy about how Cyrus is going to issue a decree that allows the exiles to return. That's prophesied well in advance of that ever happening. That's a prediction, a foretelling of what is to come. So that's one element or one type of prophecy we see in the Bible. The second is sometimes called forth-telling, which is speaking forth. It's the idea of proclaiming God's word, but not but something that is not necessarily predicting anything. So examples of that would be uh, just uh, when a prophet is proclaiming the fact that the people need to repent. You know, he'll say, thus says the Lord, there will be this condemnation, uh, often of the leaders of the people of Israel, for all the injustices, all the things that they are doing wrong, and then uh, a call to repentance. And you know, there's nothing predictive about that necessarily, it's just... Uh, it's just proclaiming a truth, and that's a, just speaking forth God's word. So there's those two elements of prophecy. Now, sometimes you will hear people talk about how preaching today is, is prophecy. And I, I think that's not true. That's not exactly accurate. I would say that there is a sense in which preaching is prophetic, in that it's declaring forth God's word. What we're doing when we gather, we're, we're proclaiming to you God's word. So there's a word, so it's a, a, a sense in which that's the forth-telling, proclaiming God's word. Uh, but I would also say that it's not the same thing as prophecy. So yes, you know, we're reading and declaring to you the, the word of God, um, but nothing has been uniquely revealed to me uh, and... and, and I don't come to you with any uh, authoritative word except that which is God's word. So I don't get a revelation from the Lord and then turn and speak it to you guys uh, when I'm preaching. I'm, I'm trying to explain what has already been revealed in the word and, and help us understand it and apply it. Um, and so at, there's, there's ways in which you could say that's kind of like foretelling, but I would say it's distinct from prophecy. And preachers are not prophets. Uh, also, in the, in the New Testament, another reason I, I, would, I would argue that is that um, prophets are listed distinct from teachers and shepherds uh, in the New Testament. So when you talk about gifts given to the church, you have prophets, you have shepherds, you have teachers. Uh, they're, they're listed separately as our apostles. And so you can see that in um, 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4.11 are two places where they're listed out separately. So I'd say preaching today is not exactly uh, the same thing as prophecy. In the passage I read earlier uh, in a service from Deuteronomy 18, uh, where we read about uh, 
um, God is, is speaking through Moses, and he's talking about how he's going to, Moses is saying that God is going to raise up a prophet like Moses from among his brothers, and he'll speak these words that they are to listen to. But we also saw in those, in those verses uh, how it is they were to test the prophets. If a prophet comes and speaks the word of God, and they say something's about to happen, uh, if it doesn't come true, then that person was a false prophet. And that's how Israel were to test prophets. Uh, you can also see it in the first couple of verses of Deuteronomy 13. Now, obviously, that works for predictive prophecy. Uh, the type of prophecy that says, you know, X is going to happen. And if that doesn't come true, well, then you're to conclude that was a false prophecy and that guy was a false prophet. But also, in Jeremiah 6, 13 and 14, there we're told that prophets and priests... But prophets were saying peace to people when there was no peace. And God is condemning that in Jeremiah chapter 6. So this meant that they were proclaiming to the people that everything's fine. You're okay. The Lord is happy with you. The Lord is fine with you. We're okay. Uh, No problem. There's peace. And God's saying, no, there is not peace. So they were speaking uh, this this forth-telling to people saying, uh, everything's okay. Uh, when there wasn't, there was blatant uh, corruption. There was blatant violations of God's revealed law, which they had in the, the, the books of Moses, for example. Uh, the people were in violation of these commands, clearly. Uh, and that's what God is saying in Jeremiah 6. And so these prophets were saying, no, everything's fine. And God's saying there, they're false. They're not true prophets. What they're saying is not true. It doesn't line up with Scripture, in other words. So, we conclude that when a prophet's, uh, that the prophet's message, if they're predicting something, it had to come true, Deuteronomy 18, and we can see that it needed to line up with the Word of God, which I think is clear from Jeremiah 6. So, in other words, if a prophet errs, then they are not a prophet, they're a false prophet. That's, that's, that's the Old Testament teaching. So that, that is what prophecy is. Now, I would also submit to you that prophecy as a gift is one that has ceased. So this is often referred to as cessationism. Now, this position is somewhat controversial in the uh, larger evangelical world today, um, but, but it's not really historically controversial. Uh, Today, I can remember, uh, even in seminary, stating this to somebody that I I held this position, and they looked at me like aghast. (laughs) And I thought, oh, you know, uh, it's kind of in line with uh, the reformers and those who came after them, uh, but today it's viewed as a little little weird. So, um, you know, but again, any of the Protestant confessions, for example, are going to point you to this conclusion. So what is cessationism? Well, it's the understanding that the spiritual gifts, which are commonly known as the charismatic gifts, uh, have ceased after the time of the apostles. They've stopped after the time of the apostles. So those gifts include apostleship, tongues, miracles, healing, and prophecy. Now, just a quick caveat Uh, What this doesn't mean is that God no longer does miracles, that God no longer heals people. Okay, those things do exist. God does still perform miraculous deeds. He still does great things. That still happens. What this means is that the gift of being able to perform this as someone possessing the gift of miracles or the gift of healings, that that gift has ceased, that we don't just... We are not able to just walk up and and make it happen. We can pray that it happens, and sometimes the Lord certainly answers those prayers and will will miraculously heal somebody, and we can call that a miracle, and that's that's great. What we're saying is the gift of that uh, has ceased. They're no longer in operation. So there's, there's no, now there's no explicit place in Scripture where it just simply says that. Uh, that these things have stopped or have ceased. Um, so 
Um, so then why hold this position? Why, why come to this conclusion? And I, I would say it's an implication of several other scriptures and other biblical truths. So first of all, uh, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, that the apostles and the prophets formed the foundation of the church. They were given as the foundation. Christ is the cornerstone. You have the prophets and the apostles as the foundation of the church. And so this would be apostles like Paul, the Twelve, and New Testament prophets, is I think what he's referring to there. Uh, and the reason for that is because elsewhere in Ephesians, uh, uh, he, he refers to the gift of apostles, and he's talking about New Testament apostles. So it's, that, that's what he's talking about. The foundation of the church are uh, the apostles and the prophets that were also operating and functioning during the days of the apostles. And so we know, we know that the apostles were not replaced when they died. So sometimes people wonder, you know, how could you possibly say a gift has ceased It's not explicitly stated. Well, for one thing, the gift of apostleship surely has ceased. We see that when prophets, when apostles died in Scripture, for example, um, they were not replaced. The only place we see a replacement is in Acts chapter 1, and that's replacing Judas, who was the traitor. And and that's a different situation. When we jump ahead to Acts chapter 12... I think it is, it's 11 or 12, it's 12, I think it's 12. Uh, James, the brother of John, dies, he's an apostle, they do not replace him. They do not replace him. And then throughout history, after that, beyond, even after uh, scripture, uh, we know from history that the apostles were not replaced. They had disciples who followed after them, but none of them took up the mantle of apostle. And so we conclude that this gift of apostleship to the church was a foundational one, Ephesians 2.20, and that it was not a gift that was meant to continue forever. For one thing, we know from Acts 1 uh, that apostles were to have seen the risen Christ. And so today, uh, we we can't do that. And so we would conclude uh, that... um, that you cannot be an apostle today, at least not in a biblical sense. And so that gift, I would conclude, has, has ceased. And so there's one example of a, a gift that I think clearly has, has stopped. And so uh, just one thing before, before moving on with that, if you, if you, there are people today who claim to be apostles. Uh, there are people who claim that, that, that those people still exist. And I would, suggest, I would say, don't believe that. We should not believe that. Uh, the early Christians did not think that the apostles continued, that it was something that was handed down. And so if you hear that, and you will, uh, you run into that teaching, have nothing to do with it. So apostleship, say, I think clearly has ceased. And so, again, I would conclude that they laid the foundation of the church along with the prophets, and that we now, as believers after them, we build on that foundation. Uh, We don't continue to add to the foundation. We are simply building onto that. We are called to now contend for the faith once for all, delivered to the saints. I would, that's Jude 3, I would say through Christ's apostles and prophets. And so we don't need uh, further revelation from the Lord. We have everything we need for life and godliness right here in the Scriptures. And even as we open the service with Hebrews chapter 1, uh, the first few verses, we can see there that there's a certain finality to the truth uh, revealed to us in Jesus Christ. That he, God used to speak in various times, certain ways, through the prophets, but now that Christ has come, uh, He has spoken in these last days, by his son Christ. And there's a finality that rings to that. And as his apostles and New Testament prophets uh, spoke the truth of Christ and laid down apostolic doctrine, and as it gets uh, preserved and put into Scripture, uh, we don't have further need for revelation. 
Uh, I would say even Deuteronomy 18, which I also read earlier, again, there's this prophecy about a prophet, really this, this particular prophet, a great prophet, who's going to come and be like Moses, but this prophet, uh, there's again certain uh, uh, a climax to this particular individual that's being prophesied about, and we know that this person was the person of Jesus Christ. And there, there, it's if if you do if you don't do what he says, uh, it's judgment for you, uh, is is what's prophesied there. So again, there's this escalation pointing towards Christ, where there seems to be a finality of revelation that comes in Jesus, and that is contained and completed now for us in the New Testament. So we don't lay down new truths. Instead, as I said, we defend the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And so if the gift of apostle has ceased, then I think it's reasonable that other gifts have ceased as well. Again, uh, Ephesians 2.20. I would understand that to be referring to the New Testament prophets. So in Ephesians 3 verse 5, Ephesians 4 verse 11, There you have reference to prophets that were active during the first century, and they served a foundational role along with the apostles. Additionally, these gifts that have ceased were for the purpose of confirming the message of the gospel. So again, if you go to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 2 to 4, you can turn there now if you want, or... Just write it down or neither of those. But Hebrews 2, 2 to 4 says, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, it's talking about under the old covenant, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So again, it's talking about this greater salvation that's in Christ. If people rejected the message of Moses and were judged, how much more will those who reject the gospel be judged? Now, referring to this message, this gospel, this salvation, he says, It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So you see there, that at least some of these gifts, their purpose and function was to was God bearing witness to the truth of the message. So they authenticated the messengers. They authenticated the message that was being proclaimed by the apostles. And now that those messages and those truths have been authenticated and their witness and testimony is left behind for us, there is not further need for those gifts. They don't need to serve that function of bearing witness to the gospel. They served that function already, and it's kept for us a record of that in his word. So again, I would just say, this does not mean that God has stopped doing miraculous things as though he just is no longer involved or interceding in any way in this world. That's not what this means. He does perform miracles. This doesn't mean we shouldn't pray big things and ask big things and ask him to uh, be powerful and mighty uh, around us or in our midst or in our lives or hearts. We should pray for those things, and he does answer those prayers. So again, what I'm saying then is that these gifts were special gifts for the early church when the truth of the message was being established. And so just to summarize this, I want to read from our doctrinal statement. Um, and so, so here's a paragraph of what our, our doctrinal statement says. It says, We teach that there were two kinds of gifts given the early church. Miraculous gifts of divine revelation and healing given temporarily in the apostolic era for the purpose of confirming the authenticity of the apostles' message and ministering gifts given to equip believers for edifying one another. With the New Testament revelation now complete, Scripture becomes the sole test of the authenticity of a man's message, and confirming gifts of a miraculous nature are no longer necessary to validate a man or his message. So the, the, the way we authenticate whether someone's telling us the truth is not by looking for signs and wonders, but by looking to the scriptures to see if what they say uh, is true and lines up with scriptures. So, of course, some people uh, would reject this understanding. 
Some argue for modern apostles, as, as I said, or for an apostolic succession of the power and authority that the apostles initially have. So the Roman Catholic Church certainly does, the Pope being the head uh, of that. Um, but there's others who do as well. Um, you may or may not be familiar with uh, a movement called the New Apostolic Reformation. which would say we're in another sort of new apostolic age. But the fact is, the apostles were not replaced when they died. And I think a clear picture of that is Acts 12 when James is killed. And, and even just reading the early church fathers, early church history, nobody was replacing these apostles when they died. And so these people that would argue that apostles still exist uh, ultimately end up denying the sufficiency of Scripture by saying that revelation continues today, that no matter how they try and nuance it or no matter how they might try and say it's not quite as important as the Bible, it is because you cannot have revelation that comes from God that's somehow not authoritative. That would, God by his nature is the authority. So, Others will, will, will agree that apostles uh, have ceased, that we don't have modern-day apostles like, uh, like we did in the first century. But they'll still try to argue that all the other gifts uh, do continue, including prophecy, tongues, uh, miracles, healing. And so in order to do this without undermining Scripture, uh, they'll try to argue that New Testament prophecy is different than Old Testament prophecy. So they understand that if prophecy exists today and there's still revelation happening, then that would obviously compete with Scripture. So the way they get around that charge, uh, that they're undermining the Word of God, the Scriptures, is that they say New Testament prophecy is a different sort of prophecy. They, They would argue that New Testament prophecy is fallible. That is, New Testament prophets can err. They can be wrong in some things and right in other things. And we simply test the message. We don't uh, condemn the speaker as a false prophet. We just test the message that they, 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 they give to us. And so somebody could prophesy something that's wrong, and yet we are to uh, just recognize, well, prophecy in the New Testament is not the same authority, and it's a little different. It can err. And we have to kind of sort through the message and figure out which parts are from the Lord and which parts are not. And, uh, and so I hope uh, you can see how this is, uh, is problematic. Um, someone can be wrong all over the place, and yet we're prevented, these people would have us believe, from declaring this person to be a false prophet, to be avoided. Because, yeah, they might be wrong in a bunch of areas, but they could still be a prophet, and we shouldn't despise their prophecy, so, so they have to have a different type of prophecy in the New Testament. So they would, they would say that a New Testament prophecy could speak a word of prophecy, and a certain percentage of it might actually be from the Lord, where other parts of it may not be. And so they will argue um, from the example of Agabus. Agabus, as I've already referenced in Acts 11, uh, was a prophet in the the time of the apostles. He predicted um, a famine that came, and he was right about that. And then he later, uh, in Acts 21, predicts Paul is going to be bound by the uh, Jews and delivered over to the Gentiles. That's That's what he says. So he's warning Paul as he's on his way to Jerusalem. And so advocates that would say that New Testament prophecy can sometimes be wrong or parts of it can be wrong. They would say that Agabus got the general sense right. You know, Paul was arrested, um, but that the details are wrong. And uh, so they say, you know, Paul was not literally bound by the Jews and handed over to the Romans, and so therefore he got details wrong, though the big picture was, was mostly right. The problem is that this view, this view demands a, a certain precision from the prophecy that's not warranted by prophecy. Moreover, I think even more significantly, in Acts 28, 17, Paul is talking about how he was arrested. He's explaining on trial uh, how it was he was, how he got to where he was in, in Rome. He describes his arrest and almost uses Agabus' words exactly. 
Uh, he says he was delivered by his people into the hands of the Romans. So Paul, certainly Luke, the author of Acts, presents Agabus's prophecy as a true one, as one that was fulfilled. He didn't err in it. He wasn't wrong in it. What he said actually happened, and that's how Paul sees it in Acts 28, 17. That's how Luke presents it. Agabus is a legitimate prophet. Why? Because what he says actually happens. When he predicts something, it takes place, and that's how prophecies are tested all throughout Scripture. He's not wrong. And so Acts depicts Agabus as a, uh, as a faithful prophet. And so this argument that prophecy in the New Testament is different, this is the main argument for many who, who are uh, continuationists today. So those who would argue that these miraculous gifts that I'm talking about continue today. They, they are often known as continuationists. And, uh, and so this, this argument that New Testament prophecy is different, they, they, they argue this, those that realize uh, that if there is authoritative revelation today, prophecy, continuing to be given as in the days of the Old Testament, as in the days of the early church, then Scripture would no longer be our sole and ultimate authority. We would have competing revelation with it. And so they try to say, prophecy today is a lesser kind of prophecy. It's not quite on par with uh, Scripture. It's a lesser sort that may or may not be uh, even from the Lord. And so there are many people out there who, who I admire uh, and I imagine a lot of us would admire, who hold this, that position and who would argue for that. So, for example, um, John Piper is someone who would hold that view. Uh, Wayne Grudem is a very well-known systematic theologian who uh, has written a very famous uh, book that I have. I'm sure a lot of you have it, and it's so very good in a lot of things. Um, but he holds that view as well. And I would say it's dangerous. It's a dangerous view. Not only does it open up the door to fresh revelation that will inevitably compete with and replace Scripture as our authority, but it also undermines how prophecies were to be tested biblically and how uh, a false prophet was to be discovered. If, if it can be an untrue prophecy then we have no way, no grounds of, of saying, stay away from that person. They could have just had a bad day. They're a legitimate prophet. They're just off on a few things. So they undermine, the view undermines how anyone's supposed to test what somebody says or predicts, since they could be wrong. I would also just add here, uh, impressions. Someone, people ask, well, what about Impressions. What is an impression? Well, it's an impression. It's just that. It's not a prophecy. It's not a prophecy. You might be impressed, uh, might be impressed upon you that you should talk to somebody. And so you go talk to them and you end up having a great conversation and share the gospel with that person. Great. Praise the Lord. Excellent. It wasn't prophecy. <laughs> it wasn't revelation. It was an impression, and we praise the Lord that you went and had that conversation with somebody. So that's not what prophecy is. There's actually no call anywhere in Scripture to, uh, to, let our impression, to, to let our impressions guide us. We're never told to try to interpret all of our impressions, and Impressions are not the voice of the Lord. The voice of the Lord is, the, is a voice. It's a voice of the Lord. When he speaks in the Bible, it's, it's clear. It might be hard to know the interpretation of it, but the words are audible. The words are known. That much, that much is clear. So Paul was telling them, the Thessalonians, that when someone claimed to speak the words of the Lord, they were not to simply dismiss them, Okay, they're say, he's saying, do not despise prophecies. So prophecy, as Paul's writing this, was a regular part of the New Testament church. This gift is, it was in operation. They didn't have, the New Testament was not completed. Of course, it's being written as Paul's writing 1 Thessalonians. And so you have apostles, you have prophets. So this is, would be common for someone to be speaking a word of prophecy and he tells them, don't just dismiss it. Don't just write it off right away. Don't despise it. Don't just 
out of hand say no to it. And so the Christians weren't to dismiss this prematurely. They were to hear what was said, and as we read, they were to then test it, to see if it held up to the truth of Scripture. And if it holds up, if it held up, they were to then hold on to that truth, to hold on to what is good. And if it didn't, they were to abstain from it. They were to refrain from it in verse 22. So God's prophetic words are in the Scriptures. The Scriptures, the truth that we find in them, they have been tested. The apostolic teachings that are sufficient for the church are laid down in the Word of God. And so we ought not to, as believers, despise these words, despise these prophecies. They've been gathered together, they've been preserved for us, and we need to be prepared to submit to what we find in this book, to God's words. We are to be word people, Bible people. And so how might we despise it? How might we despise the word? What would that look like possibly for us? Well, I would say a couple things. Um, one, I would, I would encourage you and exhort us to not approach the word casually. So again, you've been given a great privilege, we all have, of having the word of God translated into our own language. We have the oracles, the words of the Creator, the inspired ones, probably in multiple copies in all of our homes and on our phones and on our tablets and computers and everywhere we go. To leave it on your shelf is to risk, I, I would suggest, is to risk despising it. It's to, respect, it's to risk being guilty of dismissing it. I have too much other stuff to do. That kind of attitude towards the Bible. I don't really have time for that. I got you know, a lot of things I need to do. I think is, we need to be careful of that. Again, the creator of the universe has not left us in darkness, but has given us his word. Let us not despise it, but run to it. We could despise it by simply disobeying it. And again, I think that's what quenching the spirit ultimately is. So uh, we don't despise his word by reading it and saying, nah, nah, I'm not going to, I'll pass on that one. Okay, we're to, to obey it, to read what it says and to, as best we can, believe what it says and do what it says for us. So don't just dismiss it. We might despise it by not caring enough to try to understand it. This might be part of just having a casual attitude toward it. Listen, it's hard to wrestle with the scriptures. It's it's. It's really clear on its general message and the, what the gospel is, but there's parts of it that are just simply difficult. Uh, and there's no shame in acknowledging that it's hard work to read it and understand it. It is. It's hard work. It takes brain power. Uh, it's not, we can't just sit down and op- like we may a novel and just sort of read it and be entertained by it and set it aside and on we go. Uh, it's, it's difficult work. It's a, for one, it's a very large book and every word of it matters and it's overwhelming sometimes. But that should not lead us to just, well, I'll never get there, so I'll just leave it on my shelf. We need to work hard with it, to wrestle with it. And, and, and when we discover things that it says that maybe we don't like or doctrines that are difficult for us, we need to do the hard work, each one of us, of digging into it and figuring it out and trying to determine what does this say? How do these scriptures go together and fit? So certainly we'll never wrap our head around everything here, but don't dismiss it, you know, fatalistically and, well, I just won't bother. It's hard. People haven't agreed about that. So in the past, there's been disagreements over those issues for a long time, and I'll never figure it out, so I'll just move on. We can't be casual that way. Again, it's the Word of God, the Creator, the God who created you, the God who you sinned against, and if you're a believer, the God who has saved you and rescued you by sending Christ. So pick up that word. Read it. Study it. Dig into it. Don't be flippant about it. Test your beliefs against it. Ask yourself, are the things that I believe accurate to the word of God? Yes, again, 
It's going to take a while to wrestle through certain doctrines. You won't just sit down and figure it all out in one sitting. Nobody knows this more than, well, I shouldn't say that. I'll just say, I know this as one who's been to seminary and spent several years almost doing nothing but that and still opening it up and, oh man, I, need, I don't know. And I have to try and figure it out all over again. So I'm just, I'm saying I get it. It's hard and it's, it takes effort and lots of brain power and we'll keep doing this till the day we die, but it's worth it. It's God's word. You'll know him better as you study it and figure it out. I'd encourage you as well, bring your Bible here on Sunday. Bring your Bible, have it here. Uh, certainly, you know, use your phone, that's fine, but follow along carefully. I would suggest also, uh, in order to, to make sure you're testing what's said here, read things over before you come. You know basically what we're talking about because it's whatever we left off last time, we're just doing the next verses. So you can read the verses around it. You can know, get, think through it ahead of time. How do you understand it? And it'll help you. Well, I have a question about that passage and maybe I'll answer it and maybe not, but, uh, but it help you, you know, to be prepared and to get the most out of uh, Sunday. Uh, pray. Pray that as you come and, and you, you dig into the Word, God, the Spirit of God will illuminate your heart, will help you understand it. He'll make it known to you, that He'll give you that desire to, to know His Word. As a church and as individuals within the church, the Bible is and, and must be our ultimate authority. These are the words of God. And so let us not be casual before the Word, but seek to align everything we believe everything that we do to God's Word. I have a third point, but we're going to leave that for next week. So uh, just as the text goes on, it's going to expand this. Not only are we to, it's going to talk about testing all things. It's going to talk about testing uh, prophecies, that's what Paul's talking about, but also everything. And so we will, we will talk more about that uh, next week. Um, but, again, what Paul is wanting for us as we relate rightly to the Lord is we need to take his truth seriously. We are to not quench the Spirit by just ignoring or just disobeying the Scriptures. We ought to desire to obey him. We are to not just dismiss or despise uh, the prophetic words which I'm arguing are in Scripture not to just dismiss that out of hand, uh, but we're also to test what we are told, to test all things. And so this requires care for us. We need to be uh, careful with the truth. We want to hear it out. We don't want to be flippant about it, but we want to test everything as well. And this, this requires us to be careful with God's Word. So let's, let's pray. We'll close. Father, thank you for your Word. Thank you that you've given us the truth and not left us in darkness. And we, God, are very aware of our weakness. God, we confess to you that we are sinful people. And even as those who love you and are, are, have been forgiven by you and have been given so much, we still struggle every day to obey. We are guilty of having quenched the Spirit and we are asking you to forgive us. God, we are furthermore guilty of just allowing so many other things to take priority over your word. We get more excited about sometimes almost anything else than studying your word. I pray that you would renew in us a desire to get in the word and to be Bible people, to be studying, to be submissive to what we find. And God, we need help for, to have that desire. We pray you'd, pray you'd forgive us for when we failed in that. And God, we ask that you would make us discerning people that test what we are told and what we hear being taught. And I pray that you would just be helping us to do this out of love for you and out of love for your word and the truth. And that you would make us a church that's faithful in this area, that we would be careful with the truth. And that we would love the truth and that we would lovingly defend the truth. So God, I pray that you would just be working this in us, that you would do this, that you would, it would be for our joy, that it would be for your glory. 
and we uh, just ask you to do great things in and through your people in this church here in Weyburn. And we thank you for all that you've done and all that you're going to do. And uh, God, we just pray that you would even bless our time as we continue to fellowship around food. We thank you for the food. And uh, we pray all of this together in Christ's name. Amen.